Good afternoon. I'm Chris Jones, one of the on-air announcers here at WFAE. I'd like to thank you for joining us for Equilibrium Live. It's a new conversation series that we're having about uh, conversations related to issues involving race and equity. Support for Equilibrium Live comes from Novant Health, Wells Fargo, and other listeners. Thank you for joining us today in celebration of Father's Day and Juneteenth. We want to focus our conversation on Black fatherhood. We have three guests who will be joining us today. They're going to share what being a father means to them, what they have learned from their father figures and their fathers, and what legacy they hope to leave for future generations. Starting off, let's welcome Nick Warden. Nick is the president and CEO of Charlotte Area Fund. He is also the vice chair of WFAE's board of directors. Thank you, Nick. Also, we have Curtis Hayes Jr. Curtis is a community activist and owner of world-class property maintenance. Thank you, Curtis. And last but certainly not least, we have Greg Jackson. Greg's the founder and executive director of Ill Charlotte, where he has helped train officers to communicate with the community in volatile situations and created an after-school camp for at-risk youth in his neighborhood of Orchid Trace condominiums. Thank you, Curtis. Or thank you, Greg, I should say, I'm sorry. To paraphrase gentlemen from President Obama, anyone can have a child. That doesn't make you a father. It's the courage to raise a child that makes you a father. With that, I wanna start this conversation by asking this question to each of you. Could you tell us a little bit about your children, just their genders and their age, and what does being a father mean to you? Let's start with Curtis. Hey, first off, Chris, thank you so much for having me. Uh, Nick Warden, thank you so much for having me and guest. Uh, honor to be here with you today. Um, I have two children. My daughter is 12. My son is seven. And what it means to be a father to me is, is extending uh, the future of my family, of, of our legacy, um, and, and ensuring that those two uh, take their rightful place uh, in this world and, and go out and represent uh, that last name well and, and just represent their friends, family, and, and constituents well. So a father to me is, is one that uh, raises, um, you know, disciplines, love, nurtures, and uh, just overall cares for the overall growth of their children. So again, thank you for having me. Thank you, Curtis. Uh, Greg, tell us a little bit about your children and what does being a father mean to you? Yeah, uh, first off, thanks for having me. Uh, appreciate the platform, especially being able to speak as a Black father, as a Black man, um, and a father of three girls. I have three daughters. Yes, pray for me. Um, 17, about to turn 12, and six. They are all wonderful, great extroverted personalities. Um, but being a father is, uh, first, a blessing. Um, just to be trusted with life and to navigate life and, and help guide life uh, and be entrusted by God to be able to do so. It's just an honor and a privilege to be a dad um, and to be in, in charge of, you know, just navigating these, these young children into adults that will be productive and uh, be salt to the earth. So first, spiritually, it's a, it's a blessing. Um, and an honor and a privilege, but, you know, worldly, it's, it's definitely, um, 
a challenge to be a father, especially a father of three girls. Um, it's very humbling to be a father. Um, and my role is to protect, provide, uh, and create a village for her, um, for all of them, um, that will be able to support them and be and be with them uh, alongside with me and um, to always respect their mothers uh, so they understand how a man respects women. Um, but it's a, it's a role of responsibility that cannot be compared to anything else. It's an absolute blessing to be a father. Nice, thank you. Um, and Nick, could you tell us a little bit about your children and what does being a father mean to you? Absolutely. Uh, thank you again for um, you know, having the thought leadership to pull this group together on such a momentous occasion as Juneteenth, right? Having been talking about Black fathers, which is really, really exciting. Uh, my uh, three children, my oldest is a daughter, she's 38, son is 36, and uh, our youngest is, is 29. And, um, you know, they are, quite frankly, the joy of my life. Uh, and I say that because uh, growing up in New York City, um, I came from a home where my father wasn't really at home. He wasn't, he wasn't present. And so as a result of that, a whole range of impacts uh, occurred. And so I'm just excited to be a part of breaking sort of intergenerational uh, dynamic, right, of being not just in the home, but fully present. Uh, and helping to launch my, our children's uh, lives and careers and uh, married to a uh, wonderful uh, wife, Regina, for 42 years. And so uh, it's just really an honor uh, to, to really you know, help them through their challenges as, as young adults. Uh, you never stop parenting. Uh, and as a Black father, I realize that there are so many myths about uh, whether or not we're truly present in their lives, whether we're actually making a difference, not only in our ch children's lives, but in the community's lives. And so I, I just think this role of, of being a father is an enormous responsibility uh, and requires great risk-taking, great insight, great empathy, uh, and great listening. And so um, and just thank you for, again, for having this panel. Oh, thank you. Thank you all for joining us. Nick, I like how you said parenting never stops, right? So let's Let's go to the beginning of parenthood. Could you tell us about the experience in having your first child uh, from that first moment you found out you're going to be a father? We'd like to know what those emotions were like. What were the thoughts running through your heads? Um, Greg, what, what was that experience like for you? Man, um, my first child, Jayla, um, she's 17 now. Um, man, I was 21. <laughs> and uh, I was scared. I was excited. Um, I was I was vulnerable. It, I was, um, you know, it was it was such of an experience, and I had so much uh, determination and inspiration to make sure I didn't miss a day of her life. You know, because uh, I met my father at a at a you know later in my teens uh, when I was fourteen, fifteen. Around those ages is when I met my dad. He's a great guy, great man, God rest his soul. Um, but I missed a lot of years with him um, growing up, growing up in the boogie down Bronx. Um, so, you know, I was I was scared, man. And um, but I was determined to to be the best I could be, to be the best dad. Had no idea how I was going to do that, especially for a girl. Um, I, but I knew 
that I had to make a way out of some way to do something. Um, and I uh, wanted to take on that challenge of just changing the legacy of what fatherhood looks like in my, in my family, um, making sure that I was just gonna be the best that I could be. But it was terrifying. And um, uh, you know, Jayla's mom, uh, she had uh, pneumonia uh, while she was giving birth. Um, it, it wasn't looking good. She got very sick. Uh, it was a very scary time. Um, we almost lost her during that pregnancy. Um, but it was uh, it's a blessing, just an absolute blessing to go through that. And I'll never forget that first time uh, <laughs> I have experienced now. So I, I feel as I went through with my second and third child, the anxiety wasn't there like the first time, but I was terrified. Yeah, yeah. Um, Nick, you had uh, maybe some challenges as well. Could you tell us uh, what that experience was like for you having your first child? Sure, sure. As I, as I mentioned, um, uh, Gina and I have been married for some time now. We have like 38 ages of our children, so you can, you can imagine we were very, very young. But I will tell you, you know, shotgun weddings aren't, aren't so bad as long as nobody gets hurt. Uh, so um, the bottom line is this. Our uh, first um, child being born was really kind of complicated. We had infertility uh, challenges uh, as a couple. And it was a time of great anguish and great um, sorrow in many ways. Um, but then we, you know, we went, wife went for incredible surgical practice at Upstate Medical. And, and uh, we were uh, excited that it might be 80%, 90% chance that, that we would be able to conceive. And, um, and God had another thought. And so uh, within, I don't know, a year or so, uh, you know, we were pregnant uh, with, our, with our first daughter. And it was just an amazing um, time for us. Um, so that really encapsulated, you know, uh, our mindsets, right? Uh, and so many, you know, families today struggle with infertility, right? Uh, and so they do a, a range of things, but just hold out, keep, keep working at it, do the things you need to do. Um, but after our first child, a uh, year or two later came Hassani, our, our second. So Kia, Hassani, and Hadir. And then, of course, um, some years later, as I told you the years, um, we had Hadir, uh, which is our youngest child. And, and, and Hadir means gift from God. And so, uh, and that's exactly uh, what she has been, and all of them have been. So that, that's, um, that's, that's where we were. A gift from God, that's, that's wonderful. Um, Curtis, could you tell us a bit, uh, how was that experience for you having your first child? What were those emotions and those thoughts running through your head? Um, I would say that they were kind of similar to, uh, to Greg. I mean, uh, I have my daughter at, uh, I was 20, 21. Um, my daughter's 12. Uh, so, you know, at that age, you're, you're still trying to find yourself. So, um, you know, when I found out that I was bringing a child into this world, I mean, I was excited, but, uh. I think that um, most most of it was was scared and trying to figure out, you know, what my next move was and, and how was I was going to provide for not only myself, but for this child who whom I went out and created. So, um, you know, again, it was a blessing, though, it was definitely a blessing in disguise, because, you know, at, the, at those times you're trying to figure out who you are and what you're going to do and, and, and what your purpose is. So. Um, I felt like that that was the beginning of, of me walking in the purpose that God has set forth for me, which is, is becoming a father and being responsible for a life. So 
Um, you know, it was a great experience. It was a learning experience. Uh, but at the same time, definitely a uh, scare, you know, would, would be what I said on my on my first experience. Don't know how in the world my son got here, but, you know, uh, the second experience was definitely much better. <laughs> That's good. Gosh, guys, um, you know, in our community and our black community, they say it takes a village to raise a child. And that village is pillar in the black community. How important is that village for your children? And how are you a part of that village for other children? Greg, I'll, I'll turn that to you. Tell us about that, that village. Yeah, um, before I jump on that, uh, let me just give props to the mothers of my children. Uh, I have three children, two mothers, Ebony and Yakisha. Uh, as we talk about the village and as we talk about being the dad, uh, I am blessed with uh, two amazing women um, raising my children. Uh, I have three girls, so <laughs> I'm, I, I don't have all the answers as they go through puberty, um, as they learn about themselves as black women and how to express themselves. Um, uh, I just wanted to shout them out. I know the other brothers um, would, would feel the same. So shout out to the, to the women, the mothers of the village. Um, as we protect and provide, they nurture and hold the house down. Um, but outside of that, of the family, there's a family outside of that family of, uh, I'm from the Bronx, man. I'm from an era where you walk up the block, Miss Flo can tell you what to do. Miss Flo can check you, Mr. Street can check you. Um, the elders in the community can check you until you go back down the block. Uh, I'm from that era, I'm an 80s baby. And I love that, that era. I love what community meant then um, where you can have people that weren't your blood relatives, but they were family and um, they had authority and you respected them as elders. Um, as we teach the kids in my community, as I run Hill Charlotte, um, now it's more taking on an Eastern mindset um, and not reflecting what Western civilization has taught us as black people and living by the theology of the Ubuntu. You know, I am because we are, we are because I am, you know, the uh, each one teach one, everybody reach one. Um, it's so important for especially a young black woman, young black man to have security system around them to protect them from the evils of this world that uh, looks down on them or marginalizes them because because of the color of their skin. And as an activist, I, I fight for those things all the time, equality. Um, and uh, I, really, I really am an example for my, for my kids that they understand what a village looks like. That's why I take pride in having mentees and having young children that I pour into because I want them to be able to see that not only does my dad want that for me, he is that for other children that aren't his, you know, um, uh, biologically, I have three daughters, but spiritually, I have, you know, almost 40 kids that I keep in contact with and make sure that they're all right. Um, and anything I can do for them, I'm willing to do it. It's, uh, it's important um, for us to have villages as Black people, um, because that is the way that we are as um, Africans living in America. Um, that is who we naturally are. And that's who we have to naturally be. Um, so we can reflect the type of world and the empires that we used to live and operate in. Um, we're more than capable of reliving those moments. Uh, we just have to be um, more communal um, and not individualistic like this westernized society has uh, you know, trained us up to be. 
uh, and I try to be a reflection of that for my children at all times. We all need a village, all of us, uh, no matter color or creed, but especially young black men and young black women in the country that we live in. So it's important, very much important. Thank you for sharing that. Our, our listeners really do need to hear that that, that truly is a pillar. Uh, that was a pillar for me and that, that was a pillar for you all. Um, let's turn the page a little bit to Nick. Nick, you have a podcast. It's called Walking with the Wardens, in which you also reference that you didn't necessarily want to follow your father's example when raising your children. I think we have a clip from that. Let's, let's hear that clip. Always wanted to be a great parent. Having um, my mother raised us as, as children, my dad was not a good dad uh, for all intents and purposes, right? Because of his challenges. So I always wanted to be uh, a non-example from him in many ways, right? So, um, you know, I aspired to be a great dad. You know, a dad that was present in their lives and culturally uh, affirming. Hmm. Well, I didn't see that coming. Um, So, so let let me just say, um, did you have a question for me? Yeah, yeah. No. uh, So, listening to that clip, you said your your dad was a non-example, right? Yeah. Could you tell us what you meant by that? Sure. what did you do differently for your children? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to, to share that story. Uh, so um, just quickly, my, my mother uh, grew up in Greensboro, North Carolina, and with the A&T and all her brothers and sisters with the A&T. But she fleed the South in the 50s and came to the concrete jungle of New York City and ended up raising us three boys after my father. Uh, he was um, not really focused. I think he had a lot of resident anger in terms of his dreams not being able to be uh, realized. And he resorted to domestic violence. So I had a chance to kind of experience that in the home. My brothers did as well. My older brother was probably more impacted than I was. But I learned some things. Uh, in order to grow and to be the kind of father that I wanted to be, you know, I had to uh, forgive him in many respects. Um, and at the same time, use him as a great non-example. I didn't want to be that kind of person. I wanted to be someone that my children could, uh, could talk to, could communicate with. Uh, and the fact of the matter though, is that Chris, I had a number of really strong male role models, basketball coaches and others. I played ball in New York City. And so I had a whole village to, to, to Greg's point that protected me and guided me. You know, my, my high school coach who played for the winningest high school high school basketball team and the public school system in New York City, right? And our coach, Chuck Graham, used to say one thing to us. He said, Nick, he tell the whole team this. he say, if, if you want to have a good life, right, then you have to graduate from high school. Because if not, you're going to have an ugly life. You're going to drive an ugly car. You're going to have an ugly dog. You're going to marry an ugly woman. And he'd go all down the line and he'd be laughing to no, no end. But it was really, he was trying to tell us something, right? Uh, about life and the things we need to do. And he passed me on to other strong uh, African-American men, right? And so uh, this notion of village is so important. I worked for 15 years in high education at Ithaca College and Binghamton University. And I was able to recruit and bring in hundreds of young people uh, who, who hadn't had an opportunity to go to college. Many of them today are doctors, lawyers, professionals, because we built a village right? A culturally competent, conscious, wise village. That it really wasn't all about them, it was about 
who they can help and who, what they can give to others. And so these individuals today are, are, are living an incredible life. Right now in my current role, we have hundreds of families, right, that are being impacted by economic uh, disadvantagement as well as COVID-19 over the last few years. So I get to see a lot of men who are really striving to do the right thing for their families. And they wanna reshape their career paths and do something to, to bring dignity to their families and to the community. So I'm excited about uh, the proposition that there are a lot of strong men, you know, and that I know that Greg and, and Curtis knows that are doing the right thing. They don't get much attention, right? But at the same time, in a city like Charlotte, we've got some of the most prominent African-American men who are proud fathers too. And so we have to acknowledge that, right? It's a long-winded kind of question, but the point is um, being a non-example, sometimes as Greg said, we don't have a father in the home. It's hard to always know what to do, but you gotta know what you're not going to do, right? And so that was the sort of a guiding piece and these others filled in the blanks for me. Yeah, thank you for that. Um... Nick was just talking about something that can be a, a generational pattern um, that we could find in, in our community. Um, but I like how you mentioned forgiveness, forgiveness for your father. Um, let's turn it to Curtis. Curtis, could you tell us your experience with, with maybe trying to break those generational patterns in forgiveness? Yeah, so um, when you talk about breaking that generational uh, pattern, generational cycle. My father wasn't in, in my life. My, uh, my father and my mother had two sets of twins, two years apart. Um, I have a twin sister. I have a little brother and little sister that are twins. Um, but my father chose the bottle over his responsibility at that time. Um, so, you know, when you talk about forgiveness at 33 with my own children, uh, that's what I had to do in order to break that cycle. Uh, through my nonprofit and my mentorship, which is called Excuse Maker or Cycle Breaker, we challenge people to not make excuses of where they come from, but rather break the cycle of, of where they come from. So uh, being the founder of that, I have to lead the charge. So recently, about a year and a half ago, I actually moved my own father uh, down to Charlotte, North Carolina with myself, where he is now uh, retired. He is a recovering uh, alcoholic. But I did that because, you know, he didn't see his father. His father didn't see his father. And I, I didn't know my grandfathers uh, due to that. So I didn't want my own kids to, to go through that same problem or same issue or same cycle just because I chose not to break it. So when you talk about forgiveness, when you talk, talk about changing the course of your family, it really starts with there. It really starts with healing, healing from it first. Um, forgiving the individual who caused the trauma or caused the hurt, and then figuring out the solution. And the solution was to, to that was me bringing my father here so that he can experience his, his grandkids. Uh, it was a cycle that, 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 that he broke too, because he actually had to, to make the decision and be intentional in, in being a grandfather. You know, it was new to him. It's still kind of new to, to both of us. But uh, I think that when you intentionally work towards solution, when you intentionally forgive, when you intentionally heal, uh, a lot can, can transpire from that. And, and from that, my kids know their grandfather, my nieces and nephew, uh, nephew knows their grandfather, they're able to learn uh, about him, learn from him, 
um, which is, is a blessing in itself. So I definitely understand it. And that's how I took that approach is forgiving my father, but also even taking it a step further and actually bringing him uh, in, into our lives. So uh, I definitely can speak on that. Wow. That's, um, that's really inspirational that it is that forgiveness piece that really brought your dad's presence back to your life, back to your children's life. Um, that's, that's incredible. That's incredible. And, and I, I guess, Chris, when you, and, and I don't know if I piggyback real quick to, to uh, Nick and, and Greg, but, you know, they, them are, them are heads of that village. Uh, you know, they may not see it at their time, in their time, but I do think that it is my, myself and, and Greg uh, Jackson's job and, 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 you know, the course of, of, of our uh, generation, along with Mr. Wharton, I, I commend him because, um, you know, men his age, uh, they, 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 they fell, they, they, they fell short. They, they failed us in, in, in a, in a, in a heavy capacity, uh, because now we're now dealing with the, 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 uh, the, the, the consequences of those choices. So I commend Mr. Nick on, on what he's doing at, at, at his age, but, uh, again, they are the heads of that village. So if we can forgive and, and, and mend and, and create, intentional solutions to get those heads back uh, back in that village, then that's that's definitely what uh, I want to do. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. Um, Greg, let's let's turn to you. You have a little bit of a village yourself. You have three daughters, six, 12 and 17. That makes you our Kobe Bryant here today. You are our girl dad. Could you tell us what's it like being I see the smile on your face already that that girl dad smile. Tell us, what's it like being a girl dad and how have you navigated raising your daughters? Yeah, Mamba mentality, RIP to Kobe. Um, it's, a, it's a humbling experience being a girl dad. Um, I think earlier when I got my when Gianna, my second, my middle child, um, the second time I was like, man, what did, I don't get to raise a son, I wanna raise a king, you know? Um, I think we were all taught as young men that, you know, you're supposed to have a boy and raise a, raise a young king. And, you know, that's like your claim to your manhood. Um, but I have, I have seen some, some wonderful things raising these wonderful children. Um, my, my daughters are strong, uh, confident, uh, boisterous, opinionated. Um, they are extroverts. They are creatives. Uh, they are wonderful children of God. Um, my, my daughters, uh, they know who they are. Self-identity is very big in my household. Um, we really focus on integrity, doing the right thing when nobody is looking, uh, focusing on their passions, knowing what their purpose is, um, and me creating a legacy or helping them create a legacy. Uh, that will live past them. And, and the same things that I, I do in the village, I, I make sure I do at home, if not 10 times more than uh, what I do in, in, a, in a neighborhood. Uh, it is a, a humbling and honoring experience uh, to know that I'm going to be a part of raising um, three queens that will bring more life into this world. Um, and them knowing the importance of their role as women in this world of to be able to produce uh, and, and have children um, and be wives and, and, be, um, and be barrier breakers and, and room shakers and, and, um, and confident as women. Uh, they, they know who they spiritually are 
uh, and they know how society looks at them as women and as black women uh, as they get older. They, they uh, understand how the world looks at them. Uh, teaching my, my middle child to play chess so she can be a strategist uh, in understanding the world that is around them, uh, giving them the street smarts that I have, and then relying on the women in my family, the women that are around, the, their mothers, uh, to be able to teach me um, what they needed when they were young ladies, uh, when they were growing up, um, what they would have liked to have um, in conversations and um, where their fathers fell short so I can be better. Um, as a dad, uh, not having the answers is just, um, it's a humbling experience. And uh, sometimes my, my daughters are going through and I just have to empathize and, and try to put myself in, in their shoes, which is some of the hardest things to do. Um, but these, it's, it's a, it's an honor and it's a challenge, but knowing that you're raising queens um, that will act as so and move as so in this world, um, and there'll be a reflection of the light of Christ in this world um, and be examples for other young women. Um, just, it just feels real good to be a, a girl dad. And it's a proud moment. Shout out to Kobe RRP for making it so popular. Uh, but yeah, I'm a proud girl dad. Shout out to my daughters, G Jayla, Gianna, and Anel. Uh, Y'all, the world ain't ready for them. <laughs> yeah. Um Three queens. That's that's beautiful. Nick, you have uh, two daughters and a son. Did you have to change your parenting style and some of the lessons you instilled based on their gender? Uh, absolutely. Um, when I think about it, our son was in the middle, right? So he's a middle child, and so he certainly, um, you know, got the challenges of having a sister above him and below him, and that wasn't really easy. But yeah, absolutely. Um, Again, thinking about not wanting to be like my dad. My dad came from a generation where, where men did not express their feelings, right? And a part of it is that they dealt with such pain and anguish and, and um, uh, delayed dreams of what they wanted to do and frustrations about a system that wore them down on a regular basis, right? They were confined to jobs that, you know, didn't really speak to their aspirations or dreams, really, right? So, so I wanted to be a lot, lot more communicative, really, in a sense. And my kids would probably say he talks too much, you know. But the fact that the matter those, I wanted to really be be more engaged, more empathetic, and more listening. But at the same time, I wanted to introduce, um, you know, a sort of cultural awareness. Our kids were exposed very early to really deep understanding of, of African American history. We celebrated Kwanzaa for a number of years. We lived in upstate New York, and and they were exposed to so many scholars and interesting kinds of people. Um, we, we just did a lot, both of us, Eugene and I both, not just me, um, to really enrich our children and the ch and children around us and, and others. So um, in terms of my parenting style, I've had to learn a whole lot. I've made a lot of mistakes, you know, and I probably will make some mistakes this afternoon. But the fact of the matter, though, is listening and trying to be present and being a guide and helpful uh, to them uh, is, is just really important. So sure, I, I've had to not change, change my, my, who I am in order to be a more effective with both my son and, and my daughters. Yeah, that's good. Um, having to change yourself in order to be effective. In thinking about changing ourselves, I wanna turn to Curtis. Um, Curtis, you had a very passionate interaction with a younger gentleman uh, and an older gentleman back during the 2020 protest over the murder of George Floyd. Uh, let's listen to a bit of that. 
but he also got something that I need what to do right now in 16 is come up with a better way. Because how we doing it, it ain't working. He angry at 46. It's all you understand me? Putting yourself in harm's way is not the way. You and the other your counterparts, the same age and that, have that same power. Y'all coming with a better way. So in that clip, you were urging the need for a better way. And you decided to lead that charge in trying to find that better way by throwing your hat in and taking a swing at a campaign for city council, right? So could you tell us as a father, the importance to set that example and how black fathers can inspire others to find that better way? Oh man. Um... You know, the moment was 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 great. I think that it was a um, <clears throat> a, a blessing uh, for us to have that moment on I-277 that resonated in, in, in so many hearts. Uh, that young man actually graduated uh, from Julius Chambers, um, which is which is awesome. Uh, when you when you talk about how that inspired uh, me to run for office, um, it is is basically because you know. We, we do so much on a grassroots level. I'm a philanthropist. I give out scholarships. I give out, you know, my time, my, my, my words. We, you know, we do all of that. But I, I felt like, you know, will it go down in vain if we don't have a seat at the table? And when I say a seat at the table, you know, we have a lot of, um, of, of, of educated, uh, you know, African-Americans uh, that, that sit at the table, but, but we don't have a lot that has actually been through um, you know, through the fire, through the storm. So, you know, growing up over in East Charlotte, going through uh, certain certain things and seeing uh, my, my friends and my mom and family experience a lot of, of what our political leaders, you know, make choices on when it comes to our life from, from education to, uh, you know, you know uh, uh, funds that go into infrastructure, affordable housing, food deserts, things like that. So, <clears throat> You know, I ran for city council. I came in second place out of five, which is phenomenal. It shows the support of the community. Uh, but, you know, as a father, that that moment um, that my son stuck my sign in, in, a, in, you know, in a gas station, you know, was was monumental for me. Uh, because, I mean, again, you know, certain time, you know, certain as as black people, we feel that, though, we reach certain peaks. Uh, you know, one thing I heard at, at one of the graduation ceremonies is one of the young, uh, the valedictorian told her class, she said, don't let high school be your peak. So, you know, for me to show my kids uh, that I ran for office, I'm running again in 2023 was just everything because, you know, they see that their peak uh, just don't stop with getting a high school diploma or, you know, getting a job, uh, you know, at a as a beginner or whatever the case may be. So, you know, my kid, my son, even at seven, he understands, uh, you know, what I was doing. My daughter at 12, she definitely understands, uh, you know, my, my purpose and what I'm doing. So it is a great feeling to be able to be an example uh, of being a leader, of being a staple in the community. Uh, you know, win, lose, or draw, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a loss. It was only lessons uh, in, in my first, in my first political race. Um, so, you know, and, and, you know, my daughter knows that I didn't have the opportunity to go to college. It wasn't in my cards. I actually went straight into the workforce and, 
ended up building my table through, you know, my businesses and things like that. But, uh, you know, just to be able to show them that, you know, if that isn't in your cards, if something was to happen, hopefully I push college on my kids, especially my daughter. So I, I'm, I'm praying that that she will take that route as this route was a lot harder. But just to let them know, to be an inspiration to my community, to, 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 my, to my generation, to, to my peers, you know, to let them know, you know, you, you, there's no peak unless you create a peak for you. You know, you can always, as long as you reach for the stars and be intentional in doing that, then, you know, you can go for it. So it was a good feeling for my family, my kids to see, to, to, for them to see me run in the race. It was, it was truly a blessing, but uh, definitely an inspiration for not only them, but for myself as well, for sure. Yeah, that's um, always striving to do better, always striving to be better, always striving to climb higher. Um, yeah. As we kind of turn to lessons and lessons we have to teach our children, particular to being Black and being Black youth in America, everyone is familiar with, or I should say most Black people are familiar with the talk right? It's the talk. Nick, I want to start with you first. Could you tell everyone, one, what we mean by the talk and also what that talk sounds like in your house? Well, um, so, so oftentimes we've, we've um, characterized the talk uh, to be uh, a conversation that parents, uh, women or men have, usually men, have with their sons about interactions with um, police, right? Traffic stops and so forth and so on. Um, but for me, as I mentioned before, we have, we've had multiple talks. That's just one talk, basically, right? It's really how do you navigate um, being in an environment, uh, a country, quite frankly, that uh, proposes, that, espouses rather, that opportunity is equal and that um, everyone has a fair chance. When in fact, everything around you, if you happen to live in urban communities, you know, is, is a total stark contrast. In, t in terms of opportunity. You actually, quite frankly, locked out of many opportunities, right? And you understand that there's systems of racism that are always at play, right? And to the degree that you even uh, start to think differently about who you are and your potential, because you're not, uh, you don't have access to the kind of education that, that Greg speaks to, uh, that speaks to our history and speaks to who we are, our leaders, what we've done, accomplishments we've made, uh, and so we have multiple conversations. That's just one conversation, quite frankly. And so, um, so that that's that's really, you know, how we kind of frame it up. We we talk about everything in our family, right? Uh, and you have to have an opinion, right, about what's going on around uh, around you. How are you showing up? You know, how are you are you um, committed to excellence? You know, are you committed to doing the best that you can, right? And I know we're talking a lot about. Uh, individual uh, sort of efforts. Now, and I know that Curtis mentioned earlier about, uh, he gave, gave, gave me a wonderful compliment uh, as, as a father being present. But in actuality, um, there are a lot of fathers that have been, been present of my generation. We have to have more conversation about the, 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 the intractable system of racism that has closed opportunities down for individuals in my generation and older, right? So I don't think there was an intentional letting down, as you said, uh, failing the community. I do think that um, 
uh, we've got to kind of forgive them too, if, if we're into forgiveness, in order to make our so-called village whole, right? That becomes really, really important. Yeah. Um, and Curtis, I know we're going to lose you here uh, in just a few minutes, uh, but I do want to get your opinion on this last uh, question. What, uh, what does the talk look like in your household? Yeah, sorry, I got to go a little early as I, I referee uh, for the state. So we're having uh, basketball clinics today at UNC Charlotte. So my apologies for having to leave early. But uh, when, uh, when you talk about the talk, you know, the talk has been going on for years. The talk has went on uh, since we were brought over uh, into the into this state uh, uh, by the white man. So um, when we talk about the talk, I hate the talk uh, because it, it, it to me and this is my opinion, the talk, the continued talk, I feel it kind of puts our kids at a uh, at a disadvantage. It, it kind of it, it's kind of preparing them just kind of letting them know you know hey you know if the white man pull you over then this is what you should do and, and my talk is, is if the white man pull you over make sure you're educated on law make sure you're educated on politics make sure you're educated on what they can and cannot do uh, and that's just in general just it, with the talk in general the talk is based off of color you're black you're, you're, they're white you know, if you're in this situation, this is what you should do. Don't, don't, you know, don't do X, Y, and Z. But, uh, you know, I, I like the, the good trouble phase. So when we talk about the trouble that I've definitely put that in the talk is, 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 you know, you don't get into any bad trouble, but it's definitely okay to get in good trouble. Make sure you always stand up for you. Make sure you stand up for your color. Make sure you stand up for your brother or sister next to you, your, your, your family, your community, um, and never waver in that. So, when we talk about the talk, I'm, I don't like the talk. Uh, and, and, you know, even in the village, when I talk to kids that are not mine and I'm speaking to them, I let them know the same thing. So my talk is a little bit different uh, than, than I, I guess the signature talk that we have is, as black and brown people. But, um, you know, I, I definitely make sure that I let them know doing that to just make sure that they're educated and, and make sure that they, they stand on what they believe in. And if what they believe in is, is correct, then I support them fully. So, uh, you know, I think that we should definitely start shying away from the talk. Let's let's reevaluate the talk. Let's revise the talk, and then um, and and choose a different name for the talk. So, uh, but I definitely think that uh, making them aware uh, of of what is going on, of how the system is set up, and and how the world is set up against, you know, black people. Um, but again, I never just have the talk. I definitely revise the talk when it comes to, to me and mine, for sure. And, and, and I wanted to piggyback off of uh, what Mr. Uh, Wharton said. Um, I'm, I don't want to sit and say um, that your generation intentionally uh, did X, Y, and Z. But what I will say is, is that I don't believe that they intentionally stepped up to make certain changes when it comes to the dynamics of the black community, because, and, and again, I, I'm a true believer and I believe that we all experience certain things, sacrifices uh, that needs to be made. But I, as a 33 year old black man, and from what I've seen and still see today, uh, I believe that my, I could talk about my father, my father's generation, that they, they're, they're in a comfortable place. They always, I feel like that they haven't never really took the chance to branch out and, and to pull a young black man off the street or to pull 
a, a young black man or black woman from from an addiction, but they rather soak in the own in their own uh, own, own mistakes that they made. So my apologies if 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 I said that, but I don't believe that they intentionally uh, were intentional about making a change or changing the course of their lineage from the mistakes that they made um, as as parents or men. So yeah, I understand your point. Thank you. Yes, sir. Well, Curtis, um, thank you for your time and joining us today. I see you are wearing your basketball uniform. Uh, yes. like happy Father's Day and go out and make some good calls today, okay? Thank you so much, guys. And again, it was an honor and I definitely look forward to, to linking and talking with you guys soon. Make some thank good you. calls. That's great. Thank <laughs> you. I, I got it. <laughs> Bye -bye. Sure. Awesome. Greg, let's, uh, let's turn it back to you. Again, you are our girl dad. Um, that conversation may look a little different for you as well. Could you tell us what the talk looks like in your house? Yeah, I remember when we first started talking about this talk, I didn't know which one we were talking about. You know, there's so many, so many talks that happen inside of the household. Um, but for my daughters and for me and mine, um, we definitely have that conversation and it's ongoing. It's an ongoing conversation. It, it really, the talk starts with books. Um, you know, it starts with uh, them having education and reading about our history. Um, you know, uh, books like this one right here, they had a dream, mm -hmm. you know, books like Black Tax, learning about America, books like Kabuka, books like learning about Ethiopia, books like Asafo, Okay, by Dr. Amos, Look, it's, it's about these books. It's about them getting this information. It's about knowing how the world does view them. Um, so they are prepared and they are ready. Uh, I'm, I'm a dad and I believe on armoring my children um, with, with the knowledge that they need to be able to navigate in this world. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't, I don't shy away from this conversation um, because it is a reality. Um, and uh, especially raising young women in this in this world, um, it is important that they are equipped to be able to protect themselves, uh, not just physically but mentally and spiritually. Uh, so we have plenty of conversations, um, but definitely the conversation on not only how black people are treated, um, but how black women are looked at and where they rank at the totem pole of America. Um, because my daughters need to know what barriers they're gonna break down. They need to know what furniture they're gonna move around in this system. Um, so they need to know how this system looks at them. Uh, and then they also know how I look at them and how God looks at them, that they are fearfully and wonderfully made and that they'll be able to break down any barrier that I'm about to tell them about. Uh, and then I also, uh, I give them history on when we were rich, uh, when we were um, uh, world, world dominators. Um, so, they, so they also know how far we have gone as black people. Um, when, they, uh, excuse me, when my daughters learn about uh, Ethiopian empires and Guyanese empires and um, you know, Queen Nefertiti, like black women who were emperors that were running their, their nations, you know, they need to know about that. You know, they need to know that black women were rulers of worlds of, of this world, like black women are, are powerful. They need to know these things. And then they also need to know how this westernized system looks at them. Um, but so they know their possibilities and they know where the world holds them to. Uh, and I think it is very important that every, every father has that, has that conversation with their daughters and with their sons, um, because we do not want our children walking around blind. 
um, getting getting side sucker punched by the system. Um, we want to make sure that they have everything that they need to be able to fight back and to be able to conquer and then to be able to in inspire another generation to knock down some more generation, some more generational walls and barriers that have been put up. Uh, it's the only way that we as Black people are going to get the equality uh, in this world, in this, in this nation, uh, and we can't lose sight of that. Uh, we can't dress this thing up and make it something that it's not. Uh, we have to give it to them real. And these kids appreciate that because they, they want to be able to change the world. They want to be able to be salt to the earth. They want to be able to be a difference maker and an impact person in this world so they can see the change uh, that they see, right? So they could be the change that they see in the world, right? So um, we have in this conversation, yeah. in the household, out the household, while we at uh, <laughs> Frankie's, <laughs> you know, and, and it's, you know, we're treated differently anywhere. Uh, my daughters are very aware of that um, and they see it and it's good that they see it because they'll be able to change it for the future. Mm -hmm. can, I, can I make a point about this talk? Because just, a, just an add on, thanks, Greg, that was just brilliant. Um, so I've come to believe that this sort of uh, attention to black people having this talk um, is really a sort of, a, while it's real, it is also a sort of a, an artifact of how white people look into a dialogue that goes on with black people about race, right? Because in actuality, you know, as, as Greg, Greg said, and I'm sure Curtis will say, we have lots of conversations. Are we now to talk to our children about how to go to the supermarket after witnessing what happened in Buffalo? I mean, there's so many talks, you know, you know, we could have, right? Yep. So much so that uh, others don't want to know, basically. Okay, so this talk thing has sort of become sort of an artifact of sort of white gaze, if you will, into the conversations that Black people have about a shocking racial circumstance that mm. they are sort of like, oh my God. I don't have to have this conversation with my child, right? Mm -hmm. I, get, I get the educational value of it all, but it's not just one talk, quite frankly. Yeah. I agree. And look, they're taking critical race theory out of schools. They take it, we can't have them take it out the household. Like that's we, we got to recognize our ancestors, the ones that fought for us to have the, the, the rights that we have today. I'm, I'm very, my, look, my mom's, was a, 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 my mom's an activist, my grandmother's an activist, my, my grandfather is a, the, the first social entrepreneur I've ever seen in my life, you know, just selling fruit in Baltimore on a, on a corner, and then that fruit stand becoming a smoothie shop, like people, people have worked hard for me to have what I have, and for me to be able to just give it back to the world we can't ignore that and we have to address it and we have to talk about it like it's it's just the honest it's just the honest thing that needs to happen we can't let people erase our history and and make them dress up what's what's going on in america while while young black men and young black women are, are facing injustices and young black men are being murdered in the street um no my, we're gonna have a conversation in my household and my children are gonna be equipped yeah, I, I love that you whipped out the books on us. Um, in, in my household, it was very similar. It was my dad bringing out books that are specific uh, to our culture, um, just because I'm not going to go get that uh, at, at the school. But that is something yeah. that's important to learn. 
at the house uh, and it connects you with your parents that's a very important thing um, to do uh, yeah. do turn because we do have a question from the audience uh, it comes from Sheila thank you Sheila for being here with us today Sheila asks, uh, would it help to have NC custody law modernized to presumed shared parenting to keep more fathers in our children's lives after separation or divorce? Nick, you're, you're shaking your head. Do you, you have an answer? Yeah, so I'll just, I'll just say, um, yeah, I think that's important. Um, I, I think there's a lot of systems, right, that um, separate fathers uh, from families. You know, even those who have been incarcerated have done their time. Uh, there are a variety of structures and processes that do not, are not focused on reuniting families, right? And this is some of the most harsh situations. So sure, I think there's some, some value. That's a larger discussion. But um, the fact of the matter though, we have to be about um, the business really of strengthening families as a whole, right? Um, obviously, you know, just as a system level, Increasing a, a living minimum wage for the state, you know, so folks could earn a earn a, a, a solid wage, right? Um, providing opportunities for folks to, to work, to um, re-educate themselves, to to earn a, a living uh, in a city, in a state, in a country that is uh, incredibly becoming out of reach for most families, right? Uh, extending health care. There are some very important systems um, initiatives that, that we need to really focus on that will help all families, not just black families, but all families uh, that are struggling. Yeah. Um, I appreciate that, how you said you know, changing the systems uh, and things we can do in the future, things we can start to do tomorrow. Um, and that being said, let's, let's lastly talk about the future, right? We've gone from becoming fathers to the challenges and the joys of being fathers. Now let's talk about legacy. Let's talk about the legacy you hope to leave for future generations. And Greg, what does that legacy look like for you? Yeah, um, legacy is big in, in my household, uh, talking to my children, talking to the children of the villages that I'm a part of. Um, Legacy is one of my core values. Uh, what are they gonna say about you when you're gone? What are they gonna say about you when you're gone? Um, and that is something that I did not think about for most of my young adult life. Um, so living in the now, uh, but showing my daughters um, the importance of, first of all, having a legacy to attach to. Uh, you know, so often in our communities, uh, these children don't have a legacy to attach to. We have so many kids that are, you know, um, graduates, college graduates of, of, the, of the household, but they were the first, right? Um, they're creating legacy, you know, they're creating legacy. Uh, so le legacy has like these three part ways to it. And the first part is, creating a legacy for my child to be able to attach to and say, I want to be a part of that. My dad did, just like I speak of my grandfather, um, you know, his social entrepreneurship is what I attach to of what I seen when I was younger, 
right? Being a being a people pleaser and being a conversationalist, but still adding business to it. Uh, that is a legacy I am attached to. My grandmother as an activist is a legacy that I attach to. Um, and that legacy sprouted my mother, you know, and, and she is a part of a legacy I attach to. I aspire to have the characteristics and qualities of my mom, right? Um, so it, it, is, uh, it is important for you to have that legacy to attach yourself to, and then know that you have the power to either, either when you get older, continue that legacy or create a legacy for your child to attach to or other children to attach to. So you have the, the power to, to attach yourself to a legacy and the power to create a legacy. And these things can be negative or positive and it's completely up to you on what you wanna to be to this world. But the important question is and how we're gonna live in my household is we ain't living for now. You know, we're not living for now. We're living for, for the, not the next generation, but the generation after that. You know, I want my children's children's children to have um, opportunity and resources and they should be able to rely on my last name, what I did to have some social cachet uh, to attach themselves to. Uh, a lot of my white brothers and sisters uh, that we do this work with, they understand that type of legacy. Um, the, the, the officers that I train um, in CMPD, the, the new recruits that come in, I take them to the International Civil Rights Museum so they can understand the legacy of the department that they're about to attach themselves to and that they have the opportunity to change that legacy, right? So it's, it's, um, it's so important in my household what legacy is and, and how we look at legacy and that we value legacy and that we create legacies for the next generation and a generation after that. And we need to get back to that as a, as a black society, um, being able to create these legacies and think far, far beyond us um, as individuals and think about the village. So uh, I, I love, I love legacy. I love being, thinking about, you know, having a legacy. I'm a, I'm a Christian, so I'm attached to one of the greatest legacies, like the greatest legacy ever. Right, I'm attached to that, and 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 I take pride in it, knowing that I I am a, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm a co-heir, right, and that's and that's how I want my daughters to be able to look at what what I've created for them is that they are co-heirs to a throne. Um, so you know, uh, legacy is very very important. I don't want to ramble on it, but it's so important to me, and it's so important to my children and to my family. Um, and and I'm proud to say that we ha we have a great legacy. And um, we're creating great legacies. Thank you for that. And, and Nick, we just have a couple of minutes left here. But what does legacy look like for you? Yeah, so I, I'll just say thank you, Greg. Uh, that was um, really, really profound, uh, all of what you said. And it's just so compelling. And I'll, I'll think about it after, after uh, this, this session. You know, what, what, I, what I'll say about uh, legacy is that, number one, you got to be gone in order for it to be appreciated. That's, that's really number one. Right, because um, you know we're not in charge of our legacy fundamentally. Because you got to be gone, right? So when I think about leaders, whether it's Obama, whether it's you know um, individuals that are prominent uh, that we talk about, we read about, um, they're not in charge necessarily of, of their legacy. You know, it's time and situations that impact, uh, and then one can see whether or not um, that was an effective approach, right, uh, to deal with the future or not. Right. 
So you, you lay down the groundwork as, as Greg um, described and, and you hope and pray, right? That, um, that your children uh, will grow up to be good people. I mean, you know, our children, our children are all professionals really, but the bottom line is that I want them to be good people, right? I want them to be concerned about their community. I want them to be grounded in the word, in the spiritual word, which, which is gonna serve them well when they're confronted by circumstances and situations that they do not know how to handle. And they have to seek a higher power, higher than themselves, and higher than their intelligence or their degrees or whatever they think they have, right? So that's what I really want for them, right? Is to be good people, fundamentally, good people, make good choices, right? Because so much um, is about what we say and runs contrast to what we do. So I, I really want to um, be about uh, some consistency, some predictability, right? Integrity. I want to be able to say and do and keep those consistent. And I like my children uh, to do that as well. And it's not easy in this complex world. So um, I could say more about that, but I, I just want really them to be good people, right? Um, and not think so highly of themselves right? Uh, that they think they're better than others, right? I, I want them to just be grounded in the word, good people, and, and serve their community, uh, and be the best they can be. Not the best I want them to be, but the best that they want to be. Yes, sir, that is correct. Um, well, that was good. Yeah, yeah. thank you, Nick. Um, well, there you have it. Legacy isn't something you leave for people. It's something you leave in people, and those are the values that uh, you all are instilling in your children, and that's excellent. Um, this has been a great conversation, gentlemen. I appreciate your insights and your perspectives uh, on fatherhood. I'd like to wish you both uh, a wonderful Father's Day. And hey, Chris. Uh, Juneteenth. Yes, sir. Uh, I just want to shout out my mom for raising a young Black man, because um, they said a Black woman couldn't raise a Black man, mm. and I'm a Black father and um, it's happening. So shout out to my moms for defeating the odds and breaking right. down a barrier for me go. to be a strong black man. Well said, well said. Wonderful, thank you for that, Greg. Um, this has been Equilibrium Live, a new uh, conversation series about race and equity here at WFAE. I would like to thank our guests for joining us today for this important conversation, Nick Warden, Greg Jackson, and Curtis Hayes Jr. I'm Chris Jones. I would also like to thank our amazing listeners and our sponsors, Novant Health and Wells Fargo. To learn more about upcoming Equilibrium events or WFAE events, go to wfae.org events. Thank you and all have a wonderful weekend, Juneteenth and Father's Day.